Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I am Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, uh, this week, we wanted to address one topic. The data point I have there is 30, as in 30 percent which is the total percentage of global container traffic that goes through the Red Sea Strait. That particular strait is now the site of America's latest military operation. It goes by the name of Operation Prosperity Guardian. It's a coalition of countries involved, led by the United States, against Yemen's Houthi militia, which has been attacking container ships passing through the Red Sea Strait that is adjacent to Yemen alongside the Red Sea. U.S. forces carried out strikes against Houthi militia in Yemen. The bombs reportedly targeting a radar site. A day earlier, U.S. and U.K. forces struck more than two dozen locations. They have been targeting key international shipping routes for months now, out of solidarity as they see it with Palestinians in Gaza. It's an attempt by the Houthis to try and pressure Israel to stop their war. The Houthis are getting... So, yeah, we thought we would take a look at the Red Sea in general, this conflict in particular. Just to start off, Adam wanted to ask what sorts of goods are transported through the Red Sea in the first place. Are these primarily manufactured goods from Asia that are heading to Europe, to the Mediterranean Sea, or is this primarily oil from the Middle East. I mean, what are we talking about when we're talking about these container ships? Yeah, the, the crucial thing is that they, they pass through this passage on the route to the Suez Canal. That's where we're headed, right? So you go past the Red Sea Straits, and then you go up the, up the channel and up to the Suez Canal, and then you go into the Mediterranean. And so uh, the Suez Canal gives us a very good idea of how much traffic we're talking about here. And it's in the order of 50 to 60 vessels a day, over 20,000 a year. So if, I don't know, if you allow like 12 hours of daylight, that's like one every 20 minutes, one very, very big ship every 20 minutes. So this is a major artery of, of global commerce and trade. 120 plus million tons of goods were transported through this channel. The emphasis, uh, I think, is, is where you put it on containers. So these are manufactured goods. That's where I think it really matters most. That's the kind of stuff which maybe is more time limited. It needs to be just in time. It's part of complex supply chains often. Quite a lot of the inputs and outputs of the ramified system that makes motor vehicles are on this route. Stuff like oil is important, but it's more fungible. And there's oil tankers tootling around all over the world, and you can move them in one direction rather than the other. But I think the more sensitive point-to-point -point kind of transportation is what really matters, and that's manufactured goods. And it's above all the trade 
Asia, in other words, China and Europe that's at stake here. And it's a very big flow for both sides, for both the Europeans and the Chinese. So, I mean, given that Chinese and European interests then are most directly involved here, why aren't they, the Chinese and Europeans, more involved in the policing action against these disruptions posed by the the Houthis? As I mentioned, it's the US that's leading this coalition. I mean, but is it just that Europe is not capable of doing this on its own? Or has China shown any appetite at all for protecting global shipping lanes now that it's such a it's so reliant on them for its own uh, economic stability and, and growth? I mean, it's certainly true, speaking from a, an American vantage point, that both the Chinese and the Europeans are puny by comparison with the US in terms of their ability to deploy naval forces to the region, like a trade powerhouse like Germany can, I think, you know, if it's feeling ambitious, can send a frigate. The French have a more stable platform for military operations. The Chinese also have a long-term deployment, broadly speaking, in the region. But I think the the most important answer to your question is that this isn't a policing action from their point of view. This is politics. I mean, the Houthis are uh, shooting at these ships for political reasons. This is not to be confused with Somali pirates, who no doubt, of course, had their own political reasons. But I think it's fair to say the Somali pirates were, that's a kind of survival economy that's going on there on the Horn of Africa. Whereas the Houthis are a full-on political movement who are engaged in a deliberate effort to sabotage world trade so as to assist the Palestinians in their struggle against the Israel's onslaught on Gaza to at least focus the world's attention on its ramifications. And as soon as you code it as policing, you're basically falling in with the pro-Israeli position on this, which is that they're a menace to global society, they're outlaws, and so on and so forth. Whereas both the Europeans and the Chinese see through the politics of this situation, at least to the point where they realize they can't really with a straight face take that position. Um, and so the Chinese vessels in the region have actually apparently taken to broadcasting as loudly as they possibly can to anyone that will listen. This is a Chinese ship, fully Chinese crewed. Don't shoot at us. We are not your enemies. Um, notionally, the Houthis are trying to target Israel-connected ships in the region, right? That's the famous um, hijacking that they did or, or whatever we're going to call it, like hostage taking they did when they, they flew in the helicopter and filmed the whole thing. So this is a this is highly political, which is why the positioning of the European powers and the Chinese is as delicate as it is. Because if you think back to the pre-crisis period, the Chinese were positioning themselves as the honest broker between Iran and Saudi Arabia. This was this dramatic new role that they were assuming in the region, in which they do indeed have an existential stake. But their understanding of their existential stake is that you don't just sort of dumbly line up with whatever has been declared a policing action. You pick your sides, you pick your sides very carefully. And in this case, they're not about to align themselves with a you know Washington-dictated policing action against one of Iran's major allies in the region, right? And the Europeans are very divided. And the folks with the French, notably, who have probably the most military capacity and have been underpinning Europe's pirate, anti-pirate activity in the region are very wary of allowing themselves to be suborned in a set of operations which ultimately amount to um, an extension of the political conflict from the East Mediterranean and Palestine to a much, much wider region. So I think that's the... It is, of course, true that even if they chose to act, they would have precious little material with which to do it. But I think fundamentally, 
the real issue here is politics and the construction, how you understand what this problem what this problem is. And if you understand it as the regrettable extension of the Palestine conflict to the global seaways, then lining up on one side, as the British, for instance, have done in joining the Americans in their strikes on the Houthis, is a political choice you're making. And from the position of many of the Europeans, notably the most capable, and certainly from China's point of view, that just doesn't make any sense. Got it. I mean, you know, it does strike me, though, that, you know, whatever the political context, the United States uh, material interests, you know, aren't as directly implicated here as as much as many of the European countries, you know, just again, in a very direct material way in terms of the effects of these attacks. And I'm wondering whether the United States, from, I guess, the European perspective, can really be then trusted to protect these shipping lanes that Europe is especially then reliant on economically. I mean, historically, what kind of context does history offer here? I'm thinking of the Suez crisis from the 1950s, where Europe felt like it had specific interests in uh, uh, material interests in, in maintaining control over the Suez Canal, and the United States basically dictated otherwise to the Europeans. So what context does your history offer here in terms of the US role? I think the essential thread to grasp here is not the particular interests of Walmart, for instance, that's heavily dependent on Chinese manufactured goods, right? That's, that isn't the story here. In any case, I, I'm sure they import them through the port of LA. But what's at stake here is hegemonic calculus on America's part. And the Eisenhower administration, unsurprisingly, was indignant at the, the sheer kind of vertiginous insanity of the British and French action against Nasser and the Suez Canal in 56 in cahoots, of course, with Israel, uh, which scored one of its first great military victories in that campaign in 56. And the Americans stood back and said, does this look like a sensible strategy for managing our relations with a, what was an increasingly important part of the world? Or will this hand the cards to the Soviets? And so they positioned themselves accordingly. I think the direct analog here is the Persian Gulf, where under the Carter Doctrine since the late 70s, the American position has been anyone that threatens that lifeline of the global energy supply de facto challenges the interests of the United States. And again, that isn't because Persian Gulf oil mainly goes to the United States. It's because it goes to America's allies. That at least was the rationale in the late 70s. It goes to Europe and Japan, which are key to America's Cold War hegemonic positioning. And now, I think broadly speaking, it's just that America has an established interest in controlling whoever accesses that energy. And it gives them, of course, a powerful uh, lever against the Chinese in the event of conflict between the Chinese and the the United States. That's what's at stake there. And of course, in this entire logic, what's really in play is Iran. And to, as it were, maintain its global hegemonic position, the United States has the world's, you know, the most powerful navy the world has ever seen, which is a key platform for that hegemonic project. And as part of that, it's also true, according to data compiled by the Center for Global Development, that the US spends far more than all of the Europeans put together on global naval policing actions, according to their estimates, which are very interesting. They break down the bits of the naval deployment that are clearly related to sea lanes and then add them up and relate them to US GDP. And it comes out at 0.21% of American GDP, which is a non-trivial amount of money. 0.21% of American GDP is serious, serious money. It's like 40 plus billion dollars is what they estimate America is investing in sea lane policing, which is you know more than the defense budget of most European countries just on that one purpose. But I think the logic here, and this is 
when you ask, you know, does anyone trust the Americans? It's not that the people don't trust the Americans to deploy force. It's it's what their motives are. And I think the main worry on the part of both the Chinese and the Europeans is that, you know, anti-piracy or anti-terrorism operations in this case, because the Houthis were first badged terrorists, then unbadged terrorists, and now rebadged terrorists. The badging of the Houthis as terrorists legitimates the Americans to engage in what is quite clearly actually a broader geopolitical and strategic play in the region. And that's what certain parts of the EU and certainly China don't want to sign up for. So, you know, there will be some sea lane policing that goes on as well. But broadly speaking, what sea lane policing does is to provide the United States with the best possible justification for having a globe-spanning navy that secures American power all over the world. It's a little bit like the kind of rationales that we saw for the suppression of the slave trade in the 19th century, which were a quite fundamental legitimation of British naval power. Because to do that kind of suppression, which is clearly an abuse of, you know, in so many different ways, you need encompassing naval power and the right to intervene and to stop ships on the high seas and, you know, find out what their cargoes are. So this kind of liberal justification in the name of you know of collective global goods human rights in a sense as a justification for hegemonic power has a long long and, and several centuries of history um, in the liberal canon of power and I think that's what that's what those suspicious of America are worried about not that they'll pull out and let the Houthis prevail but rather on the contrary they'll use this as an excuse to intervene more dramatically than is in the interest of either the Europeans or the Chinese. So then to get to the immediate economics involved in this crisis, what exactly is the economic chain reaction then that follows from these kinds of attacks? Are insurance companies charging more to cover uh, container ships in the Red Sea? Are ships now taking more circuitous routes instead of going through the Red Sea? Do ships themselves invest more in private security? I mean, what exactly has happened uh, since the Houthis have started these attacks? Yeah, what happens is that the shipping companies deploy their floating capital, you know, hundreds of these highly specialized roll-on, roll-off ships, tankers. You know, we're talking about several thousand of these very expensive vessels that float around that have to be insured and can't really legitimately float without being insured. And the insurance will obviously have worries about you know, their ships being in this kind of neighborhood, they redeploy them to other parts of the world. Many are still continuing to pass through the the area. The Chinese, as I was saying, are basically advertising as large as loudly as they can that they're neutral or indeed, broadly speaking, supportive of the Palestinian position and therefore shouldn't be targeted. There is some ramping up of security, but again, it's important to avoid a misunderstanding here. And if you go into like the private security websites online and the shipping industry websites, they explain this quite clearly. There are two different types of problem here. Like when you were dealing with Somali pirates, it made sense to have armed guards to you know barricade the ships, have powerful water hoses to to drive the pirates off. There was, if you like, a private sector solution to what was a basically a form of high seas crime. If you're dealing with the Houthis, who are a military operation on the scale of a Hezbollah or a, or a Hamas or even something far more substantial than that, they actually have bits of their own air force and a very substantial rocket artillery at this point. The the message from the industry is don't even attempt to mount a private resistance. This is a war. This isn't a this isn't a case of you trying to ward off an intruder or you know a break in or even a kidnapping. 
And the risk is that they will simply escalate to levels of violence that you can't possibly match. And so that's where I think the limit is. And, and there's a, I think there's a consensus that the that the solution is political. Those who are not in the crosshairs of this conflict may still, at reasonable risk, travel through this passage. Those who are at risk would be better advised to simply avoid it. Okay, we're going to take a break right here, but we will be right back to continue talking about the Red Sea. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest, and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. So then... On a macro level, economically, does this all lead to more general inflation, perhaps in Europe more so than in the United States? 
And I mean, otherwise, are global energy prices already affected by this kind of conflict? There is a pressure of that type. And that's the general story that we've been experiencing ever since COVID disrupted global supply chains, right? We've become very aware of the way in which the just-in-time global economy depends on a steady flow of ships. And, and we've all come to understand the significance of that. I think one of the reasons why both the Chinese and the Europeans are so far not panicking and not allowing themselves to be sucked into this, you know, we have to end the Houthi resistance so as to save the world economy talk, is that quantitatively speaking, it just doesn't look like that kind of a problem. First of all, and quite importantly, global trade routes and shipping and container capacity are not stretched the way they were at the high points of COVID disruption, because we've had a year and a half of normalization. The containers are broadly speaking where they need to be. And what this is, is a diversion of traffic onto longer routes. Now, de facto, that amounts for a period of time as you make the adjustment to a loss of capacity. And then if you just simply have to spend longer at sea, there is an incremental reduction. But we're talking about you know, 10, 15% reductions in overall capacity around the world. And given the slack in the container shipping market right now, prices are way, way, way off their peaks. There is no immediate reason for panic on that score. On the energy side, likewise, I think there's a kind of overall calm. So 9.2 million barrels of oil per day go through the Suez Canal uh, at this point. That's about 9% of global demand. If that is held up fractionally and needs to take a longer route, you're talking about a percentage of a percentage. So you're not talking about a huge shock to the global energy system. And the effect on global energy prices has certainly seen them tick up as the Houthi attacks went in and then the Americans escalated. But we're still at lower levels than we were in the immediate aftermath of the October 7th violence and Hamas's attack on Israel and the escalation from there. So this is not good news for global energy markets, but it's not a disaster. And as we've also learned with the inflation story, inflation is a process and a shock like this is a step change. So a step change like this can exacerbate a process. But if inflation is generally speaking coming down, the effect of this might be to slow the pace at which it comes down unless the Houthis continually escalate and more and more parts of the global supply chain gets, get disrupted. It's a one-off shock to the price level. It doesn't necessarily drive an escalating series of price increases. So this isn't good news. If you're hoping for a slowdown in inflation, you don't want to see this. But part of the reason why the Chinese and the Europeans are, relatively speaking, relaxed is that this isn't this isn't the disaster that um, that you know some folks would want to see it escalated into. There's a kind of politics here of emergency that we need to be uh, conscious of. Yeah, to shift back to the geopolitics a bit, I'm curious. Uh, beyond the major powers, how are other regional countries affected by this crisis right now? I'm thinking of Egypt, which I imagine must be losing out on money from shipping through the Suez Canal, which Egypt now controls, obviously, since that Suez crisis that we discussed earlier. Uh, you know, and we've discussed Egypt on this podcast, and it's obviously a fragile country economically. So I'm curious how they're dealing with that. On the other hand, Countries like Djibouti, which is another country on the Red Sea, I know they've hosted all sorts of military bases from uh, countries around the world, including China. Uh, I'm wondering maybe they can now count on more military investments uh, of that kind. And I'm curious how that affects them economically, so to speak. 
Yeah, this is, I think, a really crucial issue in one of the kind of underrated elements of this story is that we tend to go to the global level when we should probably be thinking regionally. I think that's a really, that's a good way to take this. And for Egypt, this is really bad news. Egypt earns between nine and $10 billion a year in fees from these 50 to 60 major ships transitioning the Suez Canal every single day. And so far this year, traffic is down 30%. And that nine to $10 billion is about 10% of the Egyptian public budget. And the Egyptian public budget is in terrible shape. They're staggering from IMF program to IMF program. Their currency is depreciated hard. They have a nasty rate of inflation over 30%. The government is desperate to distribute subsidies. And so a 30% fall, that's $3 billion. That's the kind of money that Egypt's government is desperately talking to the IMF about. And Egypt is a huge piece of the regional puzzle. It's generally accepted that it's too big to fail. It's 107, 8, 9 million people and counting. This is, this is where I think the rubber hits the road. This is the real problem. Djibouti, by contrast, is a million people. Um, so it's like it's a tiny piece. And no doubt they will benefit. In, you know, notably, for instance, the Chinese have their you know, anti-piracy operation base there. It's the biggest American base in the region. It's, it's the only American base in Africa, on the continent of Africa, with like 5,000 American troops stationed there. But Djibouti is literally 1% of the size of Egypt. And Egypt is in real trouble. And this really hurts. But again, I think we have to be conscious of the politics of emergency here. Because if we're saying that, you know, Egypt's biggest problem right now from this crisis is Houthi aggression against particular merchant vessels, we're really, the tail is wagging the dog. Egypt's problem is the crisis in Palestine, right, which is terrible for the Egyptian economy, threatens Egypt with the prospect of a huge refugee problem, which is politically toxic from the point of view of the Egyptian regime. That's the real uncertainty, right? So Egypt, obviously, it will be nice if the Suez Canal was still functioning normally, but what Egypt really needs is a stabilization of the broader crisis. And so, again, there's a kind of blame shifting going on here where, you know, a piracy problem or a terrorism problem launched by the Houthis is translated into the major driver of regional crisis when the Houthis understand themselves as a political actor and practically the only people in the Arab world actually taking action on the side of the Palestinians to an effective extent. And that's, I think, what we should be what we should be conscious of here in the construction of this problem. But unambiguously, this is really bad news for Egypt. It hits it where it hurts. It needs the hard currency really badly. You can see how desperate they are because they've actually raised Suez Canal fees on the traffic that's still running through. And that tells you they're desperate because, of course, that will tend, generally tend to deter people from using it. But I guess they figure that the people who are, you know, are willing to run the gauntlet of the Houthis will probably also be willing to pay a premium to go through. And they're hoping they're price insensitive. But it's certainly, it's bad news. So then maybe let's turn to Yemen itself. I mean, we've talked about Yemen in the context of these attacks, but, you know, it always strikes me that we refer to the Houthis as this militia, that is the kind of standard designation to describe that group uh, in contrast to the Yemeni government itself. But I wonder, is the Yemeni government even in charge of Yemen anymore? I mean, should we still be referring to the, the Houthis as a militia when, when, if I understand correctly, they control about 70% of the country at this point? So how do we make sense of what the Yemeni government even is right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there is a... This is a kind of misnomer. They're de facto in control of Yemen. They won the civil war and they and they won against formidable opponents. They won against 
a, a, a regime that was backed by Saudi Arabia and the Emirates incredibly aggressively and in the background by the United States with massive weapons supplies and a number of European players, including the British, on a very considerable scale. And they waged a struggle at the expense of hundreds of thousands of lives and the immiseration of their country. And they've won. And they control 70% of the territory and the capital city of the country. So by most definitions, they were the victors. And the original intent of the Biden administration was to normalize relations with them. And therefore, they removed the terrorist designation, which they've now slapped back on. And I don't know whether you listeners have seen, but they recently staged a parade in in the capital. And you lo- it looks like you're looking at Iran, frankly. It's a giant conventional military parade with thousands of troops standing in serried ranks in conventional uniforms and trucks hauling very large ballistic missiles. There's some scuttlebutt that these are basically just, you know, pretend missiles. They're replicas of missiles. But I don't think there's any question now that they do have an arsenal consisting of a variety of different weaponry, including long-range ballistics, um, some, you know, anti-ship missiles, and very large swarms of drones which they can deploy, some of which at least are domestically manufactured. And so we're, you know, the overall strength estimates seem to be in the range of 20,000, which is where I, why I was saying earlier on I would put them in the kind of ballpark of a Hezbollah or a Hamas. It seems an underestimate that you could win a kind of civil war with that scale. I believe they have some reconditioned aircraft, which they're going to repurpose as part of a national air force. This is a zone in which you know there are a variety of fragmentary states. Somaliland is another one in this category where I think we have to recognize the fragility of power structures because, you know, Yemen, as we know it now, is a relatively recent creation of the early 90s in which South and North Yemen were hammered together. And really, since the 60s, there's been an ongoing power struggle in which different local contending groups, different versions of of Islam are really contending here amongst all. And, you know, behind the Houthis stand the Iranians because though the Houthis aren't Shia in the way, in the same way that Iran is, their version of Islam is more closely related to the Shia brand than than to notably the Wahhabist um, Sunni strain, which is imported from Saudi Arabia and is seen as one of the real you know, issues of contention in the Yemeni civil war. The other big issue is corruption. So it may be an analog is to like a force like the Taliban in Afghanistan, where a kind of domestic purification campaign is the source of quite substantial local legitimacy. In any case, they're, they're a potent player. And so again, it can't be emphasized strongly enough when then they are categorized as terrorist or pirate or we're engaged, we should understand this as political rhetoric. This is the sort of language you use when you want to outlaw your enemy. Only a matter of months ago, the Biden administration was still in the business of trying to normalize power, normalize relations with them because they understood that they are de facto the holders of power in Yemen at this moment. And survivors of it, it's really worth saying, right? A truly atrocious conflict in which the United States and its allies were complicit in indiscriminate bombing of civilians and the killing of really very, very large numbers of civilians under circumstances that we would never tolerate in our own actions as legitimate, but on the part of the Saudis and the Emiratis was was apparently uh, admissible. It's it's a very bloody scenario, and it's extraordinarily regrettable, I think, that we should be sliding back into the kind of positioning that we are now, driven by the toxic spill generated by October 7th. Yeah, I mean, finally, I suppose I wanted to take a step back, uh, as I sometimes try to do. I guess I just wanted to ask whether 
you know, this moment is revealing the political underpinnings, the geopolitical underpinnings of our entire system of global trade. I mean, has the global economy as we know it always been inseparable from the implied use of, of military force in this way to protect shipping lanes or, or, or otherwise? I mean, are these, is this just kind of revealing what's kind of always been at work uh, in, a, in a way that we tend not to acknowledge when we talk about the economy? I think that's absolutely right. That That's clearly one of the lessons here. And that can take different forms. It can take the form of a sort of idea of a public global interest in the suppression of what you then label piracy, uh, which is then a matter of policing, in which essentially all civilized nations have an interest, or the facts of the matter may be such that what you're really dealing with are political conflicts, which are being transposed into the economic domain through various types of geoeconomics, economic warfare, sanctioning, blockading, and so on. And clearly, the case we're currently dealing with is the United States is in the lead of trying to frame it as the first type of problem. And other folks in the global system insist that it's clearly the latter type of problem. In other words, it's essentially a form of extended economic warfare. And from the Houthis' point of view, having been on the receiving end of American-made weaponry for such a long time, they, broadly speaking, would imagine and understand themselves as having been in a period of truce and now resuming their conflict with the United States and its Zionist allies in the Middle East. I'm sure that's some version of that will be the way in which they tell this story. But the Middle East, I think, is the zone in which in which this interconnection between force and economics has been perhaps most manifest in, in world history in the last you know, half century or more, right? And the Carter Doctrine of the late 70s is absolutely emblematic of that, where the United States flatly declares that it will deploy military force to the region for the sake of securing the free traffic of energy through the Persian Gulf as a matter of American national interest. I mean, right there in black and white, you have it spelled out that connection. So don't mess with this. This is a message, of course, to the Iranian regime and, and also to the Soviets. Don't mess with this essential artery of the world economy in which we understand ourselves to have a fundamental stake or in which in which we understand ourselves to have a fundamental stake in the control. So you can have different levels of interest, right? An immediate interest in national survival, the Europeans and Russian gas, for instance, that was an immediate shock to their ability to function. There is the profit of individual businesses, the question, for instance, of whether America was willing to protect the interests of uh, Aramco, like America's giant oil company that was essentially expropriated in the Middle East um, by the Saudis and the, or the British the same in, in Iran. Uh, and then the third level is this more meta level of, of interest, which is the interest in control, which by itself is a is a fundamental concern for a major global power like the United States. And at all of these levels, there is a degree of there is a degree of interchange well of, of, of intertanglement between economic interest and national security interest. And the final step in this is, of course, the sanction regimes which also operate in the region where the US systematically weaponizes economic interdependence against Iran notably which it perceives as its as its uh, you know it's as its enemy and so in those kind of tiers from you know survival on the one hand and sanctioning on the other to the interests of particular corporations and sectors through to a sort of more abstract and meta interest in hegemonic control the three things are always interwoven and yes all the way back to the emergence of the modern world economy those things go together. It's not for nothing that you know the shipwrecks of galleons, 
you know, it's always a combination of some precious cargo and a bunch of cannons. <laughs> you know, the two things go hand in hand. That's what you, you know, that's what you hope, that's what you're going to find the majority of the time. And so, yeah, I think it's, uh, there are phases, of course, where essentially hegemony is established. And so then what's going on is policing. And broadly speaking, the most manifest displays of power retreat behind the scenes, to put it, you know, in rather dramatic terms. But they're always there. They're always there. And it's always one of the fundamental rationales for very long-range power projection that you should be, you know, in a position to do this kind of work. And there is something slightly vertiginous about the position of a Germany or a Switzerland, which are existentially dependent on trade, not for specific things, but just in general for the well-being of their economies. And they have really virtually, in Swiss case, no military capacity to project power you know, to the places on which their businesses rely. This is, of course, true for the majority of the world's economy. Um, but for the position of the US or for the position of European imperial powers in the past, this was an unthinkable situation to be in, right? You, you felt it was an essential part of your being as a state that you would be able to in some way secure the interests of your citizens or your subjects. And that's what's being shaken in the current moment in the world. Yeah, I suppose that entanglement always existed. And I suppose you could also include Sweden in that group of, of countries. Uh, and, you know, I was just there with my family and you mentioned these galleon ships. They have an entire museum dedicated to a galleon, oh, yeah. 17th century galleon ship. The Vasa. That they, yeah, the Vasa, exactly. And precisely what you're describing, it's it's an enormous ship, you know, decked out in imperial regalia and including those cannons. And it does seem to me like a symbol of kind of capitalist, imperialist hubris that that ship immediately sank to the bottom of the Stockholm Harbor. Oh, yeah. Well, it's badly designed. But I mean, what a thing, though. I mean, seriously, listeners, if you haven't had a chance to see it, I, I, I liken it to like seeing a dinosaur. Like it's like encountering a brontosaurus for real, like a giant dinosaur because the wood is quite well preserved. So it's but it's preserved in this dark way. So it looks like. I don't know how I imagine a dinosaur anyway. And it is huge. It's the size of a big, big, big building. Like it's, you can get down. It's really, it's very exciting. Yeah, the Vasa was- no, my, my kids just gawked yeah. at it. They were happy. I was entertained. It was yeah. great. But you even, you just look at it and you think, <laughs> what were they thinking? This thing is bound to flip over. And sure, yeah, enough, sure enough. Yeah, but there's a lesson there. It's almost like a fable. But uh, anyway, shipwrecks uh, is yeah, a thing we should take up, actually. Uh, we're gonna, we, should do, we should do a segment on shipwrecks. Okay. This is a good, good segue. Yeah, well, there we go. Okay, stay tuned uh, for that segment in a future podcast. But for now, we're going to have to leave it off here. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week.
Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.